let me begin and be very clear what role C.S. Lewis is going to play in our classroom. This class was specifically named the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the writings of C.S. Lewis on purpose. So this is where I wish I had a board. Jesus gets to decide what his doctrines are. It is not my name on the side of the church. It is not C.S. Lewis's name on the side of the church. It is no human being's name on the side of the church. No one can save us but the Savior. He gets to decide what is true, what is doctrine. That is not the role. C.S. Lewis is not a declarer of doctrine. He held no priesthood keys. He was not a prophet, seer, and revelator. He was a brilliant man. But we will not turn to C.S. Lewis and allow him to declare what's true and what's not. That is not his role. We believe that truth comes from authorized channels. Truth comes from those designated by the Savior to declare what his truth is. He earned the right to declare doctrine, and I came nowhere near paying the same price and can't stand up here and say this is true because I said so. Jesus gets to declare his doctrine. But once a doctrine has been taught, once it's established in the scriptures, sometimes it's helpful to clarify and understand and see it from a different perspective and then apply it to my life. And that's where C.S. Lewis's brilliant comes in. Once we've established a doctrine, this is what's true. Now, let's clarify that, let's see it from a different perspective, and let's apply it by turning to his teachings. So we will begin every segment, and we'll try and do at least two, maybe five segments a night. Will we begin every segment with, let's declare the doctrine. Let's let Jesus declare what the truth is. And once we've established the truth, can I illustrate it? Can I expand on it with something that C.S. Lewis wrote? Do you see how we're going to use him? We will not say, hey, what's truth, C.S. Lewis, you teach us. We're going to say, hey, here's truth, C.S. Lewis. Help me understand it better. So that being said, I'd like to begin tonight with the end of uh, the voyage of the Dawn Treader. That's one of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's about... Prince Caspian is leading a group trying to find some lost people. It's a beautiful story, but there is a defining moment at the very end, and I think this illustrates what I want to do with the writings of C.S. Lewis. So let me pull it up so we can read it together. Um, and this is what I'll try to do each week is I'll bring... All right, hold on, let me get there. Come on. All right. 
All right, chapter 16, A Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Everyone is gone except for the Pavenzi children and Aslan. And oh, how dearly I love Aslan. When you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you will fall in love with Aslan. And that's why I love what happened. Oh, sorry, you're wondering, I'm wondering why you can't see it. The very end of the book is this beautiful little story. Let me just read. But between them and the foot of the sky, there was something so white on the green grass that even their eagle's eyes could hardly look at it. They came on and saw that it was a lamb. Come and have breakfast, said the lamb in its sweet milky voice. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish, hungry now for the first time for many days. It was the most delightful food they had ever tasted. Please, lamb, said Lucy, is this the way to Aslan's country? Not for you, said the lamb. For you, the door into Aslan's country is from your own world. What? said Edmund. Is there a way into Aslan's country from our world too? There is a way into my country from all the worlds, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself. Towering above them and scattering light in its mane, Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, will you tell us how to get into your country from our world? I shall be telling you all the time, said Aslan. But you will not, but I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across a river. But do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder. And now come, I will open the door in the sky and send you into your own land. Please, Aslan, said Lucy. Before we go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again? Please, and oh, do, do, do make it soon. Dearest Aslan, dearest, said Aslan very gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, said Edmund and Lucy both together in disparaging voices. You are too old, children, said Aslan, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. How can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, said Edmund? You understand what he's saying? Are you in our world? I am, said Aslan. 
but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia. Think about, he's declaring why he wrote the books. This is the very reason you were brought to Narnia. That by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. And is Eustace never to come back here again, said Lucy? Child, said Aslan, do you really need to know that? I love his question. I love his responses. You know how many times Jesus has said that to me. Bryce, do you really need to know that? I'd like to. Do you really need to? No, I don't. Come, I am opening the door in the sky. Then all in one moment, there was a rending of the blue wall like a big curtain being torn and a terrible white light from beyond the sky and the feel of Aslan's mane and the lion's kiss on their forehead and then the back bedroom of Aunt Alberta's home in Cambridge. Did you hear what C.S. Lewis was trying to say? The reason you came to Narnia is to fall in love with Aslan. Now, go find him in your world. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to let our love for Jesus, our love for Aslan, our love for the stories that we've read, our love for things help us find Jesus. I think C.S. Lewis is saying, if you don't find Christ, then what was the whole point of all my writings? If you don't come closer to Christ, what was the point of all my writings? Because the whole purpose was to help you find him in this world. Now, the one thing that C.S. Lewis teaches really well, and we're going to go to the very first, the horse and its boy. One of the things C.S. Lewis teaches really well is that Jesus has always been there. He has always been watching. Brief summary of the horse and the boy. Um, it's about two horses and two children who are escaping a very, very challenging land of Cowerman and trying to get back to Narnia. It's their journey back to Narnia, and they face all sorts of obstacles. And one night, Shasta, this young man who's trying to make the journey, he's chased by a lion. One night he has to sleep near the tombs on the outside of the city and a cat purrs up next to him. At another moment, he's on a horse trying to make his way in to, to warn the king that the army's coming and he's chased by another lion. Now, now he finds himself on another horse on his way in the middle of the night. And this beautiful little scene occurs. So I'm going to be in the horse and its boy, and horse and his boy, first book. Uh, chapter 13. Nope, chapter 14. Wait a minute, where is it? 
Sorry, here it is. Oh, you know what? Never mind. We're not in book one. That's why I can't find it. We're not. Book one is the magician's nephew. So this is actually book three. Sorry. That's why I can't find it. Okay. I think this is where I want to begin. I want to use this story as an illustration of the doctrine is that Jesus has never, ever left you. He has been there all along. When you questioned where he was, when you wondered, when you shook your fist at heaven and said, where out there, God? When you, like Peter on the boat, said, carest thou not that I perish? How many times have you felt abandoned by God? Now, here's the explanation. Here's the clarification of that doctrine that C.S. Lewis provides. Shasta is lamenting his life and the challenges that he's faced. He says, I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe away from Tashban, and I was left behind. Erebus and Bree and Hwin, that's the other girl and the two horses, are all as snug as anything with that old hermit. And of course, I was the one sent on. King Loon and his people must have got safely into the castle and shut the gates long before Rabadash arrived, but I was left out. This is that moment of self-pity where you're sitting there saying, Oh God, where art thou? How come you have forgotten me? And every one of us have those moments. It's the moment where darkness seems to fill our life and we see nothing but challenges and pain and sorrow. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt very sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror. Now let me pause. How many times does Jesus coming into a life get perceived as... An enemy. How many times does the Savior trying to come into your life get pushed away? When he was walking on the sea the night of the storm and he came to them, what did they first say? What did they first think? Their first impression was to cry out to leave them alone. And I would suggest that all of us kind of have that instinct that I'm, I love Jesus and I'm afraid of him. 
But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him that couldn't be imagined. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop, so he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you, he said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak. I'm going to let that sit for a second. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you a giant, said Shasta. You might call me a giant, giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta after staring very hard. And then, for even more, a more terrible idea had come into his head, he said almost in a scream, you're not, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the luck, unluckiest person in the whole world. We push Jesus away. We close the door. The person who loves us more than anyone else and has been there the whole time, we push him away. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told him, he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. He then told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. He told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus. And also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. 
I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile or so so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at night, to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. What for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one, I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so the ear shook again, and again myself, loud and clear and gay, and then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all round as if the leaves rustled, rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of feeling came over him. Yet he felt glad too. The mist was turning from black to gray and from gray to white. This must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he had been speaking to the thing, he had not noticed anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead, he could hear birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and ears and head of the horse quite easily now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it, or else could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. Luckily, Shasta had lived all his life too far south in Kellerman to have heard the tales that were whispered in Tashban about the dreadful Narnian demon that in, appeared in the form of a lion. And of course, he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he needn't say anything. The high king above all kings stooped toward him, his mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung about his mane was all around him. He touched his forehead with his tongue. He lifted his face and their eyes met. Then, instantly, the pale of brightness of the, of the mist and the fierceness brightness of the lion rolled themselves together and up and disappeared. He was alone with the horse on a grassy hillside under a blue sky. And there were birds singing. Do you sense what he's trying to say? He has always been there. When you didn't know, 
when you didn't understand, when you couldn't see the why, there was reason and purpose to everything that was happening in your life. He has always been there from the very beginning. And we ought not to be afraid of him. I want to I want to compare that to this beautiful moment in the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. I think so many of us, we love Christ. But we're terrified of him at the same time because no one knows all the horrible things I've done like he does. He must be disappointed in me. Isn't that what we conclude? And I wonder if our relationship with him is kind of like this man full of leprosy. It came to pass when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy. And I don't know if you've ever felt yourself to be kind of like a man full of leprosy when it comes to approaching Christ. Tell me in those days, if you had leprosy, what was your expectation when you walked into a crowd? If I had leprosy and I walked into this room, what would I expect all of you to do? And I wonder if we don't make that same connection that I expect Jesus to run away when I approach him. I expect him to run away when he sees who's coming. Imperfect, sinful me. I expect him to run away. I am the man of leprosy. But I, I, I care enough and I love enough to shout out. Now tell me what the man knew. Look at that sentence at the very end of verse 12. What did the man know? I know you can help me. But what did he doubt? I don't know if you will. I know, I know in theory Jesus is supposed to love me. But I don't know if he actually does. I, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Now, what I think C.S. Lewis is trying to teach is this idea. What does Jesus say? First of all, what does the Savior do? What does Jesus do to the man full of leprosy? Now, what do you expect? What direction do you expect people? What direction do you expect Jesus to go if I try and approach him? And what direction does he go? Always. And what does he say? I will. I will. He has always been there. You have never scared him off. You have never disappointed him to the point where he walked away. There is more purpose in your life. There is more purpose in your challenges. There is more purpose in the lions that have chased you and scratched you than you could possibly understand right now. But someday, he will say, 
I am the one. I am the one. I am, there was only one lion. And I was the one. I think one of the things C.S. Lewis is trying to do is help us let him in and acknowledge that he does love me and he has been there. Even when I didn't see him, he saw me. Let me illustrate one more time. We did the man with leprosy. Let's talk about the woman with the issue of blood. Turn with me to Mark. Let's do Mark chapter 5's account. We'll, do, we'll, need, we'll need Mark and Luke together. But turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Let's do the woman with the issue of blood. And tell me if this isn't kind of the whole idea that C.S. Lewis is trying to teach. A certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years. Now, forgive my bluntness, but an issue of blood is a female issue. This woman has had an issue of blood 12 years straight. Never stops. Constant 12 years and no one made her better. You know how desperate she is, right? Every woman in this room can sympathize and I know exactly how desperate she is. Now, under the law of Moses, while a woman had an issue of blood, she couldn't be touched and she couldn't touch anyone else. That's a subject for another day. But if, she, if Jesus touches her, he, she makes him unclean. So how do, I, how do I get healed without touching him? So she comes up with a brilliant idea. What's her brilliant idea? If I could touch the hem of his garden. Now, the hem, when I say hem today, you probably think my pant leg hem. That's not what his hem of a garment is. If you go to the Bible dictionary, I'll save you the time. He would have worn a little tunic that had tassels right here. And as he walked, he would have thrown that over his shoulder. The hem of his garment was the tassel and the back of his back. So tell me what she wants to do. Notice the very next verse. She came in the press what does she want to do? And what do we want to do? Want to sneak up and steal a blessing from Jesus so he doesn't really notice. I don't want him to look at me. I want to sneak up and get a blessing from Jesus. So she comes in behind to touch the hem of his garment. And as soon as she does, tell me what happens. Straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Tell me the emotion in her heart at this point. She knew she was healed. She knows she was okay. After 12 years, tell me the emotion in her heart at this moment. Thrilled, right? Overjoyed. And then he said, who touched me? Now tell me the emotion in her heart. 
Now, may I suggest that those are the two Jesuses. The Jesus that we hope he is. The Jesus that heals. And the Jesus I'm afraid he might be. I love him and I'm terrified of him. And so I keep him at a distance. I keep the door closed. Who touched me? Now, turn with me to Luke's account right from here. Um, let's go to Luke 8. Notice what happens as soon as he, she, he, Jesus says, Who touched me? This sentence. How far away was she when he said, who touched me? No. Couldn't have been very far, right? She barely touches the hem of his garment. And he turns around and says, who touched? She can't be very far. She was probably standing right in front of him. What does this mean? What would this suggest? I didn't do it. She's terrified of him, as are we. We keep him at a distance. We push him away or we see him as the enemy. When all denied, she must have said, I didn't touch you. It wasn't me. Now go back to, we're going to have to bounce four, bounce back and forth, but we'll go back to Mark's account. Mark 5. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Let's stay in Luke. Sorry, I meant to do one more. Let's do one more in Luke. Luke 8, one more time. So we've got that phrase, when all denied. Sorry, right here, when all denied. I wanted to point to verse 47. When the woman saw that, she was not hid. Tell me what that means. When the woman saw that she was not hid, how do you paint that in your head? What is Jesus doing that would cause her to think that? Do you see it? Who touched me? What does Jesus do to have her conclude she couldn't get out of this? I think he's staring at her. I think the look on his face, I hear it all the time. I think the look on his face is, Bryce, when are you going to let me in? When are you going to let me in? When are you going to stop the barriers? When are you going to take down the vulnerability? When are you going to let me in? When are we going to have a real conversation? where you don't keep me at a distance. I think you all know what I'm talking about. When are you going to let me in? And so watch what she does. Watch what she does. Now go back to Mark, Mark chapter five, and then we'll go back to the Chronicles for one last. Mark chapter five, that look, 
When are you going to let me in? The woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done to in her, came and fell down and told him all the truth. Tell me about that phrase. Fearing and trembling when you finally let him in. And you drop the fears that are keeping him at a distance. When you finally let him in, fearing and trembling. Now, I think this story is what led C.S. Lewis to write the little episode with Jill and Aslan in the silver chair. So let's end there. In the silver chair, which is number six, there is one of my absolute favorite scenes in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. So Jill is brought into Narnia. She knows nothing about Aslan. Eustace is the one that brought her in. She knows nothing about Aslan. They've been separated, and she's very thirsty. But, the th but her, her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up the courage to go and look for that running water. She hears running water. When she finally sees the running water, there's what I want. There's the happiness I seek, and who's sitting right in front of it? A big lion. A big scary lion. There's the joy that I seek, and sitting right in front of it is the Savior. And this beautiful scene. Starting here. The wood was still, so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as she, if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open. She had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and two forepaws in front of it like the lions of Tra or Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. The lion says, Are you thirsty? You may drink. Come and drink. Now this conversation. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? And tell me you don't secretly say that. Jesus, could I drink in the gospel? But would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only with a look and a very low growl. 
And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. Now tell me how, how many Latter-day Saints, how many people do you love are looking for happiness somewhere else? How many people have walked away from him thinking they can find another stream that will quench all of their thirsts? How many good people have walked away looking for another stream? Tell me what Aslan says to her. One of the most profound things you need him to hear him say. What does Aslan say? There is no other stream. You want happiness? You go through the lion. Now, is he going to ask you to repent? Is he going to change your life? Yep. But there is no other stream. Now, do you remember the woman? Kneel, or fearing and trembling, coming to the Savior and kneeling down and telling, her, telling him all that happened. This is the moment. Ready? Now, here's my testimony. And here's, I think, the teaching from C.S. Lewis. Is why are you afraid to let him in? Why are you afraid of the change that he's bringing? Because look, the water he offers is better than anything else you've been drinking in the past. His way is better than any other way. And the thing that you've been scared of is that he'll change you. But he'll change you for the better. I love this sentence. I love this paragraph. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. There's the fearing and trembling. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water with her hand. Now, what are you going to discover? We're going to read this so many times in the writings of C.S. Lewis. What are you going to discover about when you finally let him in? When you drop the fears and the vulnerability and you finally let him in. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it for it quenched your thirst at once. That is the heart and soul of C.S. Lewis's invitation. Fall in love with him and let him in.
Let him change you. It'll be better. You'll be better. Stop keeping the door closed. Let him in. And you'll discover a better you and a better life. Maybe I could share just one thought from a past student. One of my previous students worded it this way. She said, what scares me about letting him in is being vulnerable and this sense of being unworthy. Sometimes I feel like no matter what I do, it's never enough. I feel like when I'm asked to do something, I'm asked to do it perfectly. Again, I know it's not true, but I never feel like I'm enough. I just have it in my head that I have to be perfect or I'll be criticized or or I'll disappoint others if I'm not. I don't want to let him in because I don't want to feel that feeling. I'm afraid of his disappointment. I've always had a hard time letting people in, especially those that have, can have a big impact on my life. I've always, I always fear what I will feel if and when I disappoint them and when and if they leave. I don't want to build relationships in fear of losing them, especially if it's a relationship I hold close to my heart. If I don't let someone in, then they can't hurt me. I know he won't hurt me, but there is still a deep-rooted fear that he will by what he asks of me. As soon as I feel vulnerable, this massive wall comes up, and it's been like that for so long, I don't even realize it happens. And when it does, I push away whatever it is that makes me feel vulnerable until I feel safe again. And I've pushed him pretty far away. Does that resonate with you? Now, what I, what the way, what I want to begin with is all throughout the writings of C.S. Lewis is this loving who's always been there, God. But what form does he take? He's a scary lion. But he is the kindest, most gentle. Now, does he scratch air of us? Yes. Does he have a reason for it? Yes. But does Shasta get to know that story? No. Oh, how I love Jesus. And part of my love for Jesus is I love Aslan. I fell in love with Aslan, and then I found that same person in this life. May we all do that. May the writings of C.S. Lewis drive us to him. And someday, I promise you will realize that he has always been there. Every pain You were never alone. Maybe we end with one more. Should we end with one more? Nope, we'll save that one. When you wake up like Shasta did and realize, I love that moment. I was the lion. I was the lion that was always there. I testify to you that you have a Savior who knows you, loves you, and has never left you. There is no other stream. Let him in.
And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.